My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This morning we're diving into Galatians chapter 2, but I want to start off with this. You know, things can go really poorly when you lose sight of the mission because you're stuck on your methods. Just ask David Cook. Oh, who's David Cook? He's the founder of Blockbuster Entertainment. All right, David Cook, founder of Blockbuster Entertainment in the year 2000, Blockbuster was easily the top dog in the movie entertainment food chain, okay? Um, quick history lesson for Gen Z. If your family wanted to experience a fun family night in back in the day, right, you would go down to the local Blockbuster video store, and you'd pick out some of your favorite videos. Uh, Prince of Egypt, that was a bop. Um, I don't know what this one is, but it looks interesting. Right? And you'd get some of these, and you'd go check out. And maybe on your way through, you'd get some movie theater popcorn. You'd uh, heat up at home, some candy on the way home. And then you'd get a few of these, and you would go home and watch your movies. It was a great weekend. And actually, anybody who was anybody had a Blockbuster card that was almost as popular as a driver's license. And uh, this, was a, this was a great way to enjoy uh, movie entertainment while you were stuck in the 90s. Okay? Now, and frankly, in the early 2000s, and here's what happened, though. Um, Ten years later, 2010, Blockbuster is now filing for bankruptcy. In fact, uh, to this day, I want to say it's still around, but it might have just recently closed. At least by 2018, there was literally only one Blockbuster store in the entire country. It was in Bend, Oregon. And uh, Blockbuster went from hero to zero in just about a decade. Now, with billions of dollars in the movie entertainment industry, you would think it would be very hard to not make money renting out movies. And that's where you're wrong, because despite being the leader in their industry, Blockbuster executives were married to their methods instead of their mission, which was to provide movie entertainment. Here's what I mean. Just in the year 2000, about a year after launching, Reed Hastings, who's the founder of Netflix, uh, tried to broker a merger with Blockbuster, right, to, to some way to join forces. And obviously the merger never happened because despite overseeing this really well-oiled machine, uh, the Blockbuster executives overlooked the subtle changes in culture that were allowing people to view and access movies with greater ease from wherever they were. And obviously that decision cost them a lot because the problem for Blockbuster was not that culture no longer enjoyed movies. Obviously, they still do. We all still do. And the problem for Blockbuster wasn't that people were no longer willing to pay for movie entertainment. In fact, in that year alone, where uh, Reed Hastings approaches Blockbuster, $11 billion were being spent on movie entertainment. Like It was clearly a high-value item. The problem for Blockbuster was that culture was changing the way they were accessing movies. And the executives for Blockbuster uh, were either largely unaware or just thought that that change wasn't really going to affect them. 
and where's Blockbuster now? You see, things go poorly when you lose sight of the mission because you're stuck on the method. This is the unique challenge that was presented to the Apostle Paul in the early days of the Galatian church. You had a mission that was white hot. It was to embody the presence of Jesus in the local church and then to go on mission and make disciples. You, you had a mission that was, that was fresh. Preached to these Galatian Christians. They, they didn't grow up with Jewish culture. They had just heard about the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. And they're giving their life to this person who is offering them freedom and forgiveness and purpose. But, as Paul indicates in chapter 1, you also have Christians who grew up Jewish in Jerusalem now traveling north to Galatia, this province of Galatia, and preaching this gospel that was much more focused on old methods. That was much more interested in making sure that you could measure your level of spirituality with some sort of coded um, language that like, you knew, based on the Old Testament law, if you were able to keep up with what God required of you. And so they were married to their methods, and as a result, they began to lose sight of the mission. I think their motives were coming from this desire to measure a standard of holy living and hold people up to it. Their motives, however, were not motivated by uh, the grace of God already revealed in Jesus. And so not only is there confusion among Galatian Christians going like, okay, is my sin totally forgiven and I'm made right with God once and for all? Or do I have to continually make myself right with God by the things that I the, 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 the obligations to the law that I have to keep up to. So there's confusion among the Galatian Christians. But not only that, there's a threat to the unity of the church as a whole. In fact, one of the ways in which these false believers were trying to undermine God's work was to hint that Paul's gospel, this gospel of grace, was different from Peter's gospel. Peter had been preaching the gospel in Jerusalem to the Jews who kind of understood and had a backstory of these old methods. And Peter is saying, you know what, let's not deal with these. Let's focus on Jesus. And Paul's going like, nobody I preach to even knows about these. And so these, these false believers from Jerusalem, they were referred to as Judaizers. They're trying to pit Peter against Paul and saying, well, one has a false gospel. And they're stirring up division and distracting from the mission. And so to face this challenge directly, the Apostle Paul did not wait for somebody else to step up. He, he took ownership of the mission that God had given him, and he books a flight, so to speak, straight to Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up the text of Galatians chapter 2. If you're able, would you go ahead and stand? We're going to read this out loud together. I'd highly recommend you keep your Bibles open. The screen is not your Bible, okay? It is the Word of God because it has the words of God on it, but this is what you take home with you, and this is what you read, okay? I want you to have this accessible in your own Bibles as well. So we're going to read together, but keep it open in your own Bibles. Then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. 
While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be the leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Even that question came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones, really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given to me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Last verse. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. By the way, great job, Caleb, our slides guy. It's hard to keep up with people are reading out loud, and he did a wonderful job, and they never get enough credit, so round of applause for Caleb. Yeah, good job, buddy. Um, let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, which is uh, instructive and insightful and encouraging and corrective. And, and Lord, I pray that you would apply your word on our hearts today. God, I, I pray that the base threshold of just learning something this morning would be not the standard we're aiming for. God, I pray that transformation would be what we seek from you. Please give us a heart that is leaned forward ready to make a change in our lives based on what your word said. Lord, I pray that your seed of your word be planted into soft soil in our hearts this morning. Amen. You can have a seat. This is the main thrust of what Paul is relaying here in this narrative, is that the approval of his ministry to the Gentiles and his place of authority as a fellow worker um, among the leaders of the early church was based on one thing. Okay? It wasn't based on the similarity of methods that he was using. Right? He, he was not preaching to people who had a sense of what the old methods were. He was preaching to people who had never even come in contact with that before. So it wasn't his methods that brought him into alignment and that affirmed his authority as an apostle. What was it? It was his alignment with the gospel. Think of it this way. Alignment with the gospel aligned Paul with God's work. Let me say it the way I wrote it. Agreement with the gospel aligned Paul with God's work. 
Because it was obvious that Paul had been called by God for this high and holy calling, this, this amazing mission, just like the other believers in the early church. But he illustrates the, the point that when God calls you to something, you can date your methods, but you need to marry the mission. You can date your methods, but don't get too attached to them. The methods are going to change based on the situation you find yourself in trying to accomplish the mission. You date your methods, you marry the mission. You see, he was still carrying out the Great Commission, but he was doing it differently from, from how any other follower of Jesus had previously seen it done. He was using different methods with a different audience to accomplish the same mission. He was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, people who, who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith, who, who weren't born Jews. And if you think about it, at this point in history, they were a previously unreached people group. People who never had access to the gospel before, by and large. Obviously, there's, there's outliers throughout scripture. And so in order to reach people who had never grown up with the scriptures, you can imagine how he interacted with them and the language that he used with them probably made some religious people pretty upset. In fact, he got some significant pushback from Jewish Christians who still thought that the law of Moses was a necessary ingredient for you to grow in your relationship with God. That you had to, to, to kind of still stay true with some of these old methods that we were stuck in. This was an indicator of how you were doing in your relationship with God. And Paul seems to indicate that not only was this thought process misguided, but it was actually malicious. They were separating people from God's mission. God was not working in the ways that they were trying to work. And so the, so the apostle Paul calls them false believers, fake Christians. They're much more interested in disrupting the unity of the early church and par than partnering with God's work, right? So this game we might say was not necessarily robbing Peter to pay Paul, but it was exalting Peter to slander Paul, quite literally. And so the first part of chapter 2 is, is all about showing that this gospel is precisely the same as the other apostles were preaching. Because of this, his ministry to the Gentiles, therefore, was legitimate because he's aligned with God's work. As long as I'm staying on mission and my gospel is the same, then the methods that flow as a result, therefore, can be celebrated. Here's the big idea, the overarching point Paul's getting at. Agreement with the gospel aligned Paul with God's work. Or you could say it this way, because I think this is true for every believer for all time. Agreement with the gospel aligns me with God's work. When I'm centered on the message, when I've got that straight, right, that's what aligns me with God's work. Think about it this way. When there's clarity that the message is straight, there's liberty with the methods to innovate. When there's clarity that I've got the gospel straight, when I am centered on the gospel, that my life is a result of what the gospel means, that my message to people who surround me, who interact with me, that the message about my life is aligned with the gospel, then I have liberty to innovate and be creative with the methods that I use to reach people. I don't have to get stuck in year 2000 blockbuster syndrome, right? I, I don't want to be married to the methods. I want to be married to the mission. 
and keep that white hot. Why? Because agreement with the gospel is what aligns me with God's work. I'm not aiming to replicate the method of somebody else. I'm not trying to steal the strategy of another believer. My job is not to be a clone of the person next to me or the church next to me or the particular movement next to me. I'm not trying to clone that. I'm aiming to be a disciple of Jesus so I can look like Jesus, so I can make other disciples who look like Jesus. That's the goal. In fact, if I'm simply trying to marry the message, or I'm sorry, if I'm simply trying to marry the method of some form of following Jesus that was handed down to me by somebody else, at best, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look like them. If I'm just trying to replicate the ways that they've always done things, I'm not going to wind up looking like Jesus. I'm going to wind up looking like them. Sure, Jesus might have led them to genuinely live this way as a result of their situated context. And so for them, it might actually be a genuine form of following Jesus. But when that gets handed over to me and saying, this is the way you follow Jesus, do everything exactly the way I'm doing, you see what's happening? I'm starting to become a clone of this person rather than a disciple of Jesus. And this weird form of religiosity begins to be created as a result. Don't marry the method. Our goal is to be aligned with what God is doing. And to do that, I simply need to get my life and my belief system in alignment with the gospel. And then adopt a method that's appropriate for the time and place that God's called me to be in. It's agreement with the gospel that aligns me with God's work. So I want to walk through this text this morning and and discover three ways to, to ensure to know that I have gospel alignment. Right? Three ways to know if my life is shaped by the gospel or maybe by the form of somebody else's religious standard. Here's the first way that you'll know that your life has been shaped by the gospel. Number one, the gospel produces unity. Look back at the first couple verses here. He says, 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas. And Titus came along too, and I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church, and I shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. See, apparently Paul's critics, these false believers, had not only attacked the authority of the gospel, of of Paul's gospel, but they were saying that he was sort of a a renegade opposed to um, the, opposed to and, and independent from the apostles in Jerusalem. And so what they were doing was they were setting up this artificial division, this false dichotomy that was not based on the mission, but rather based on the methods that he was using to accomplish the mission. And so as he's responding to this, he's pointing out that the Jerusalem apostles had, in fact, endorsed his message. They affirmed that he was on the same team, pursuing the same mission, which is crazy to think about because it was... Over a decade, it was 14 years from the last time he had been there, he mentions, right? So the last time he was there, right, they're making sure we have got to be firm on the gospel. we got to make sure we know what this is. And then Paul goes off for over a decade doing ministry, 
the fear there would be, especially for those people who are married to old methods, right, would be like, oh, over time he's starting to change, he's starting to blend into the culture, and so his message is changing. And so Paul goes back 14 years later and goes, hey, I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. 14 years later, because both of them had been pursuing the mission, and they weren't necessarily married to their methods, at least on the apostolic level, 14 years later, there's still alignment with the gospel. How is that a testimony to the success of methods? It's not. It's a testimony to God preserving his gospel. It's a testimony to the mission still being relevant. And in fact, as we read in verse 2, it wasn't just Paul's idea to make sure that they were on the same page, to make sure that he was doing things okay. God sent Paul to Jerusalem. Why? The trip was specifically designed to bring unity among the leaders of the church, to bring unity in the mission of the church. And Paul actually seems to indicate, man, if, if they're siding with this legalistic sense of how we should preach the gospel, man, I feel like my last 14 years were labored in vain. He's just like, man, this, this would all be such, it would feel like such a punch to the gut if we weren't so focused on the mission, if we had lost track and we started to marry the methods. But by the grace of God, the gospel of grace lasted over this, over a decade without, notice this, without the fine-tuning efforts of religious people. They weren't constantly going back and forth in committees, going to make sure, let's, like, there was some committees, for sure, right? There was council, there was meetings, it's not like that's unbiblical, but they weren't, like, constantly trying to regulate each other's spirituality. And I think that was something that maybe the methods of these false Jewish believers were intended to ensure. Let's, let's make sure our methods never change. Now, let me just be clear. I think sometimes there's a good motive for trying to do that even though it's misguided. It's like, no, 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 God led us in this direction. Why should we ever change what we're doing? I think the quite simple answer is the people you're trying to reach in the direction that God is leading you, they're changing. The mission hasn't changed, but the world in which you're accomplishing the mission has changed. Now, you can't deny that. So why would the methods stay the same, right? Uh, and, and so we start to think about it this way. Uh, it was God's mission, so God made sure that the mission remained, even though the methods had to innovate. And, and the big thing that needed to be sure was that you were still in unity. You were still aligned and unified on the mission. The result was unity as long as the church leaders were in agreement with the gospel. In other words, agreement with the gospel aligns me with God's work. Agreement with the gospel aligns me with God's work. So the gospel begins to work out this sense of unity, the second result is that we see freedom. The gospel produces freedom. To give a sort of example to this, in the next few verses, uh, Paul mentions how he brought along Titus. Now, Titus we might recognize as a book of the Bible, but Titus was a Gentile convert to Christianity. This is a guy who never grew up um, influenced by Jewish culture. This is a guy who never grew up with the scriptures, right? He heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul. He puts his faith and trust in Jesus. Um, and this was a radical thing. The fact that, that you could receive the gospel outside of the bounds of Judaism. 
And so to demonstrate the power of the gospel beyond Jewish culture, Paul brings Titus with him to Jerusalem, which is kind of a big test. But the next few verses, 3 through 5, kind of give us a reasoning, a, a glimpse into Paul's reasoning for why he did this. This was a test to see if the, gent, the, 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 the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem of the church, if they would recognize and allow a Gentile Christian to be welcomed as a fellow believer, as a fellow disciple, without being circumcised, without taking a page out of the old methods. All right, I'm, I'm going to bring Titus with me. I want to make sure, and I'm going to put this into practice, I want to make sure we're on the same page in a real practical lived sense. Is this new Gentile believer, are you going to subject him to the old way of doing things? Or is it true that you actually believe the gospel? Is it true that there is freedom because this is this is the the tension that he's facing like i mentioned already these false believers are saying no 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 no. he's going to be circumcised he's going to be circumcised and paul is trying to give this emphatic no jews and gentiles are both received into the faith are both granted access to god's presence by the gospel of jesus christ bar nothing And, and so for Paul, he's passionate to say, we need to be unified on this. That there's freedom as a result. I'm not just saying, let's believe the same thing. Let's actually live like we believe the same thing. There should be freedom resulting in the gospel that we preach. Now, here's the interesting thing. I think that there's not a whole lot of people today, when, when you're pursuing unity, maybe I say it this way. I think maybe for a lot of people like me, <laughs> we'll just make it personal. Pursuing unity would probably tend to look more like putting your hands up after giving your opinion one time and going like, well, I tried. Is the fight really worth it? You know, let's just, let's, let's seek unity here. Uh, it would probably look a lot more like trying to agree on methods rather than making sure the mission was the thing that shaped everything else. And in the pursuit of unity, we actually wound up getting uniformity. If you think about it, it would have been so much easier for the Apostle Paul to say, oh, come on now, circumcision, kind of not a big deal. Let's compromise on this issue. Let's save face, face with our friends in Jerusalem, right? Let's make it look like we have everything together so we're kind of a fun bunch of people to be with. Let's not just go into this. Let's... And with such an approach, he would have spared himself some confrontation for sure. But he probably would have forfeited the cause of gospel freedom. Paul's determined to seek clarity and unity in the gospel because these false believers, what's happening here is these false believers coming up from Jerusalem, they're trying to essentially make Christians slaves again. To say, yeah, yeah, yeah let's just trade one set of chains for another set of chains always enslaved to some sort of system convincing us we're not good enough to measure up to God. And so to impose 
Circumcision on Titus, which is what Paul's demonstrating here, would, have, would be to deny that the salvation was by faith alone and to affirm that the law was God's means of accepting you, of you becoming acceptable. It wouldn't be freedom. It would just be swapping chains. There's no freedom outside of the message of grace. There's no freedom, no matter how historic the methods. Only the gospel brings freedom. And so it was worth the trouble to pursue alignment and agreement with the gospel so that they could make sure they were aligned in God's work, despite how it might upset established methods. God's work to free us was at stake. It's it's agreement with the gospel that aligns us with God's work. It is not being stuck on historic methods that is what aligns us with God's work. So number one, the gospel produces unity. Number two, the gospel produces freedom. And the third thing that I think the Apostle Paul is getting at here is that the gospel produces fruit. The gospel is what produces fruit. He's pointing out here, verses, let's see, uh, six, verses six through ten, he's pointing out the fruit that God was producing, similarly enough, not only through Peter, but also through Paul. He's saying, yeah, God was producing fruit through Peter, and it's amazing, and I'm celebrating God for this, or I'm, I'm, I'm celebrating God's work in this, but God's also producing work over here. I mean, no, look back at verses, uh, let's see, let's just start with eight. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle Paul to the Jews, as the apostle to the Jews, I'm sorry, I mis- misread that. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews, also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact... James, Peter, and John, who are known as pillars to the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. So he's mentioning how the Jerusalem leaders are affirming God's work in his ministry, the gifts God had given to him, and even the blessing to the poor that came as a result of his ministry. And they're saying, yeah, keep, keep doing that. And the point that he's trying to make is that if your efforts to serve God in your own strength and incredible energy, they're relying on your methods, and they never allow for God to change your methods to accomplish what you never even thought about before, it's possible you have a false gospel. Because he's saying, no, 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 valid ministry from Peter, ministry from Paul, also valid. So what do we notice here? We're noticing that God changed the methods to accomplish the mission in a just, just in a different location. And so if, if, I, if my view of God, if my view of the, the myth, the, 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 the message and the mission, if my view of what God is calling me to do never allows him to be bigger than what I interpret in my scenario, serving who? Peter's work, I'm celebrating it. And also, you know what? Peter celebrated the work that God is doing, even though the methods were completely changed. See, the whole point of serving God is that through our efforts, he does what we could never do so that he gets all the glory. And if you can predict everything that would happen as a result of your efforts to serve God and and reasonably explain all the fruit, 
Well, I did this, so this happened. I did this, so this happened. I d- our church does this, so as a result, it makes sense that this happened. Our, we, we do this in our life group, and so therefore, it, it makes sense that this happens. If you can reasonably explain all the fruit, you've, no, you've left no room for God to be needed or necessary, you might actually have a false gospel. It's when you go like, holy moly, I have no idea how that happened. God just showed up. I can't explain it. He's a whole lot bigger than me. His grace is bigger than mine. His mission is much more effective than mine. He changed my methods. I didn't know what I was doing. I felt so lost. But somehow God still showed up and produced fruit. That's when you can go, man, I, okay, that's the God I believe in. That's the gospel that I'm following. I have, the, I, I have, a, I have a gospel that is mission-focused and not method-focused. But it's when you've come to not only this mental understanding of the gospel, but you've bet your life on it. That's when you're going to begin to see God working in amazing ways. That's when you're going to see the fruit. Because alignment with the gospel aligns me with God's work. Agreement with the gospel aligns me with God's work. So what does this look like? I just want to make a few observations. Number one, if you truly believe the gospel, you're going to actively pursue unity with other believers. Even from other churches. Think about this. If studying theology, studying the Bible, learning more about God, going to church leads you to wanting to prove others wrong, if it leads you to separating yourself away from other people, you might have a false gospel. The gospel produces unity. You notice what Paul is doing. He's saying, let me take a leader of this church and go over to a leader of this church And let's make sure we're on the same page with the same gospel celebrating each other's work. I'll never forget when I was younger, we were at a church, not this one, and um, I asked our pastor at the time, I I was just starting to kind of catch a fire for God, and I was like, man, we need to share the gospel. We need to go on a mission trip maybe. And I've always been kind of the activator, so I was like, can I start a mission trip and bring some of my friends from that church and some of my friends from that church and, and he, he was like, no, well, we, you can't really do a mission trip with that church or that, because they believe this, and then they believe this, and well, we can't really, and get me, I'm not talking about like people who have disagreements on the gospel. I'm not talking about churches that one is a cult and one is worshiping Satan and one is following Jesus. And as, like, I'm not talking like total disagreement on the gospel. I'm talking peripheral issues slight distinctions in our theology it's like all right cool i'm not going to worship at your church it's probably not the right church for me our church probably not the right church for you but like we agree on the gospel let's serve people together let's do this together and i was told like no you can't really do that because we don't believe the same thing and it's always left this weird taste in my mouth i'm like that's not the gospel the gospel produces unity man if you really believe the gospel you're going to be pursuing unity with other believers Second observation is this. If you actually believe the gospel, you're going to live free. Let me ask you this. How would you describe the point of Christianity? What does it look like for someone to have strong faith? If your answer to those questions includes more rules or a way for somebody to look, be careful, you might have a false gospel. The gospel produces freedom. Right. Now, 
I recognize that a gospel of freedom, a gospel of grace is a very counterintuitive message. You'd, you'd think by hearing that the work is done, right? The bar has been crossed. The standard's already been met for me by Jesus and we totally measure up now. Okay, now I can go on autopilot, right? Work done, time for fun. Woohoo! However, what really happens is that when you understand that you measure up and that you're currently in this present moment, a recipient of the grace of God, I'll never forget, this actually happened recently. I was in the middle of a temptation to sin, and it was just like Satan was just a fiery dart, fiery dart, fiery dart, right? And I was like sitting in this moment, and I had this weird pause like, whoa, I can choose to do it or I can choose to not do it. And the voice of the Lord came over me, and he was just like, whether you do it or not, I love you so much. I delight in you. I love being with you. Whether you're in the middle of it, whether you're somewhere else, like, I love you so much. And it was this, like, moment where, like, the clouds seemed to kind of part and the sunshine just came down. It was one of those weird moments where you're just like, oh. But it was, it was powerful because the truth of the gospel says all of that sin that I was about ready to do had already been paid for. It was dealt with. It was taken care of. In fact, it, none of that was ever going to affect my relationship with God. And you know what wound up happening? I was like, of course I don't want to do that. God, you're so amazing. What? This is awesome. And I, I had this, like, this, this beaming smile on my face in the moment where God says, even if you do it, I love you so much. It was the grace of God that, chose, that, that influenced me to choose another path. It was the delight of a father that will never go away. That was the thing that overcame sin. It was not the fear of somebody else's standard. Because I can just hide from that. I can avoid that. I can grin and bear it. But the only thing that will motivate you, the only thing that will give you freedom, is the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that God actually paid for your sin? Are you stuck trying to pay for it yourself? Believe the gospel. The third observation is, that, is this. If you believe the gospel, you're going to produce kingdom fruit in your, in your life as an indirect result. You're going to aim for it as a direct result for sure. But this is what I mean. Your, your value in God's kingdom, your value to God, is not actually based on... Um, how successful you are within a system or a methodology. Like God's not waiting on you for his kingdom to move forward. God, God's not deterred by your inability in a particular moment. He's not weakened by the weaknesses that we bring to him. So don't get stuck on your strategy. Stay on God's mission with the gospel and be courageous enough to innovate when you encounter challenges to your mission. Be free to change your method so you can accomplish your mission. And that's when God starts providing the fruit. Because he's the only one who can in the first place. So as long as I'm aligned with the gospel, as long as I'm believing and living out of the fruit of the gospel, that's when the fruit begins to happen in somebody else's life. And sometimes what needs to happen is I need to get out of my own predictability, my own old methods, and I need to go out on a limb. Because it's out on a limb. That's where the fruit is. 
man, when you get stuck in your methods, when your Christianity becomes predictable, oh, man, it's so easy to write God out of the picture at that point. It's so easy to insert yourself as the Savior. On their own, your human efforts will just produce more human efforts. It's the gospel that produces the fruit of a changed heart. You need to rely on God. Let's not be people who are simply married to a method of how things have always been done. Let's date the method. There are good methods for today. But let's date the method and let's marry the mission. Let's stay in agreement with the gospel so we can stay in alignment with God's work. Would you pray? Jesus, I pray that you would convince us, persuade us of your gospel of grace. Please work in our hearts and, and produce fruit out of us so that we are the people that you use to advance your kingdom forward. We want to be those people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.